Everybody's playing games, but I can say this. I think that the Democrats want to make a deal. I really do. I feel that. What is the deal? Will you come down from... We'll call it something different. I don't think I have to. That's for this year. The president of the United States, who is a billionaire, says the 800,000 people who aren't getting paid because of the government shutdown are okay with that. Just ask them, he says. Look, if uh, Harry Truman couldn't nationalize the steel industry during wartime, this president doesn't have the power to declare an emergency and and build a multi-billion dollar wall on the border. So that's a non-starter. Hello, welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Yasha Monk. I have listened to this show since the very beginning, since, oh my God, it's been so long that Donald Trump has dominated our every waking nightmare I've been a guest on the show in the past, and now I am so thrilled to be joining it as one of the co-hosts. As some of you may know, I'm an academic, a columnist here at Slate, the host of the Good Fight podcast here at Slate, and the thing that I've been specializing on for a long time is the rise of populism around the world and the danger it poses to liberal democracy. My book, which was published this past year, is The People vs. Democracy, why our freedom is in danger and how to save it. So I'm obsessed with Donald Trump, but I'm also obsessed with understanding how he fits into this larger story. And in that respect, 2018 has been another traumatic year. Let me just give you one example. A few days ago, we saw the inauguration of Jair Bolsonaro as the new president of Brazil. Elected a few months ago, he is every bit as nasty and perhaps even more dangerous than Donald Trump. As a result, the four biggest democracies in the world are now all ruled by authoritarian populists. But 2018 has also brought some good news, especially here in the United States. We've all seen bad opinion polls for Donald Trump throughout 2017, throughout 2018, but after that trauma of the election night in 2016, there was this fear that perhaps all of those polls didn't quite capture what was going on. Well, I think the midterms should put our mind to rest about that. Donald Trump really is unpopular, and a few days ago here, we have seen a new batch of representatives inaugurated into office in the House of Representatives can now again pose a real check on the power of the executive. So if I'm being optimistic, I'm thinking that at least in the United States, 2018 may have been the end of a beginning and 2019 might just prove to be the beginning of the end. But you know what that means? The end means most likely an election. And an election means we need a candidate. And a candidate means we're going to be talking about the Democratic primary 24-7 for the next 365 days. I know it's too early. I know it's absurd. But I know you're doing it and I'm doing it and we're all doing it. So before we get into the weeds, before we start to discuss different candidates against each other, before we start to have all of the scandals and all of the attacks and all of the nasty things that are going to come out, over the next months, I wanted to think a little bit in this episode about what actually makes for a great candidate. What makes them able to put forward a vision, connect with voters, get them out to the polls. 
What better person to talk about that with than Sam Koppelman, one of the most talented young speechwriters in this country. He's worked with all of the people who you know, but whom we can't mention. He is a speechwriter and communication strategist at Fenway Strategies, which sounds like it's telling people how to play baseball, but actually is a communication shop started by John Favreau and Tommy Vietor, the two famous Obama speechwriters. We'll be back with Sam Koppelman in just a few moments, but first, the tweets. With all of the success that our country is having, including the just-released job numbers, which are off the charts, the fake news and totally dishonest media concerning me and my presidency has never been worse. Many have become crazed lunatics who've given up on the truth. The fake news will knowingly lie and demean in order to make the tremendous success of the Trump administration and me look as bad as possible. They use non-existent sources and write stories that are total fiction. Our country is doing so well, yet this is a sad day in America. How do you impeach a president who has won perhaps the greatest election of all time, done nothing wrong, no collusion with Russia. It was the Dems that colluded, had the most successful first two years of any president and is the most popular Republican in party history, 93%. The failing New York Times has knowingly written a very inaccurate story on my intentions in Syria, no different from my original statements. We will be leaving at a proper pace while at the same time continuing to fight ISIS and doing all else that is prudent and necessary. Sam Koppelman is a speechwriter and communication strategist at Fenway Strategies. Welcome to the Trumpcast, Sam. Thanks for having me. So I have this premonition of 2019. It's not much of a prediction because we all know it to be true that we're going to be talking a lot about the Democratic primary race. You think? I think so. And before we start digging into the details of each candidate and whatever fights they're going to have and whatever horrible opera research is going to come out, I thought perhaps it would be great to set the table a little bit by thinking about what actually makes a compelling candidate, what makes somebody appealing, what makes somebody capable of forging this real bond with a section of electorate. And, you know, you're a speechwriter, you think every day about how to help candidates connect to their audiences. What, what do you think? I think the first thing is the second a candidate tries to be compelling, they've lost the battle. Huh. The second that the journey to relate to voters feels forced or like the product of a lot of effort or campaign tacticians or speechwriters or people like me, the second we're noticed and not just in the background, something's gone wrong. Of course, that's you know super difficult situation for politicians to find them in because trying to be likable and trying to talk to millions of people on television, on social media, in person is an incredibly unnatural thing, something that's inherently inauthentic. But everyone who does it has to try to seem authentic. So that's the first hill to climb over. So what you're saying, which is absolutely right, is if I'm asking what is it to be cool, the answer like you try to do this and you try to do that is going to be misleading because if you're trying really hard, you're probably not going to be cool. But but what's the quality of somebody who's naturally cool? Or in this case, what's the quality of a candidate who's naturally compelling? 
So I think that one of the most important traits that a likable candidate has, no matter what, is that when they talk to a voter, the voter thinks that they're saying what they believe. They don't necessarily need to be saying what they think is true. Obviously, people are aware that President Trump has been known to exaggerate the truth or not stick to it exactly correctly all the time. Parish for Ford. But his voters felt that he was saying what was on his mind, that he was transcending the political correctness that was in the political system and he was real. Of course, that wasn't true. And of course, there are ways to be conscientious, ways to be polite where you're still sounding real. And I think the best politicians do that and they do it in a message that's inclusive, that allows everyone to feel like they're a part of it, but lets people feel like they're a part of a real thing. That isn't an exclusive club necessarily, but they're part of a team and they're rooting for the team to do well. So that makes sense to me. So presumably most politicians, I, I'm not that cynical about politics, actually. I think most politicians go in because they have a belief system and they want to make some kind of change in the world and they want to make the world a better place. So why is it that with some of them that doesn't communicate and with others it does? Some of that is baggage. Some people have just been doing politics for so long that there's been distrust. And one of the things is that politicians, a lot of the time, tell lies through their teeth and we just accept it as something that's normal. Many politicians pretended that they weren't running for president, have spent the last couple of years running campaigns saying, I'm going to stay your senator, I'm going to stay your governor. And then, you know, a few months later, they say, actually, never mind, I am running for president. And so a lot of campaigns start off with a lie and voters have no reason to trust them after that. So it's just consistently being a real person who tells the truth and who doesn't try to seem like a politician all the time is something that you can do sort of no matter no matter where on the political spectrum you fall. And then, of course, there's the message itself, which I think will obviously need to be candidate specific and a reflection of the candidate's life story. President Obama's parents came to America. His mom had this incredible story of raising him and his story tied into why he believed that America would become more perfect. If everybody in America believed in the country's founding promises, we could fight to make it a more perfect union, even if it wasn't perfect. That was grounded in his story. So the politicians that are most effective tell stories both about themselves and about the country, and they're stories that surround people. That's the main angle that I think politicians are missing right now in their conversations around Trump. It tends to be focused on policies and big picture statistics, and they tend to lose the people who are damaged by President Trump's policies. And that's where I think there's a long way to go huh. for a lot of the candidates. Interesting. So you think that candidates need to connect their own stories to what is bad about Trump or they just need to find the people out in the world who've been harmed about Trump and tell their stories? What would it look like to make concrete the damage that Trump is doing in a way that you think would connect with voters? So it's both. That's a two-step process. First, there's the story that's the counter-Trump story. And that story is about the people who he's hurt individually. You know, you hate to quote Stalin, but there's that statistic he used for ill, which was one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. So the more we talk about the millions of people at the border, we lose sight of the individual children who have been killed, the families that have been torn apart. The more we talk about the EPA being broken and run by the oil lobby, the less we're talking about kids who are increasingly having cancer because their water's dirty the less we're talking about towns that have been decimated because their environment has been ruined. But isn't there a danger that that becomes a shtick as well? I mean, sometimes I listen to politicians in debates and they're, you know, saying, you know, look, you know, I traveled all around this great state and, you know, when I was in so-and-so county, you know, Mary told me this and when I was in that county, you know, John right. told me that. And it seems like it's just part of a standard toolkit. And I'm like, 
I don't know if you actually met a person called Mary or whether you're just making that name up on the spot. And right. Perhaps you did, but you also met nine people who had different opinions and you're telling the one that happens to serve your narrative. What makes that effective rather than itself smell like this is just a politician selling me on what an ordinary guy or gal it is who goes around talking to voters? That's the second part, which is your own story as a candidate. And those individual stories have to feed a broader vision of America that you tell through both your policy proposals and through the kind of campaign that you run. President Trump was running a campaign that was a closed off campaign centered around a border wall. And so that wall was a symbolic policy saying he wanted America to be a more closed off country that characterized his trade policies as well. That's sort of the essence of nationalism. And he coupled that with campaign events where he'd bring on mothers whose kids were killed by undocumented immigrants. Hmm. Now, obviously, those stories were not representative of what was happening in America. We all know that that's not true. But when people saw those individual stories, you couldn't question the sadness those mothers felt, the anguish that they felt. So then people were more sympathetic to the policy proposals and to the vision for America that President Trump was promoting, which was an America where everyone was in danger all the time. So let's go to that, because actually, the way you're talking about it now, it sounds like we've been talking about things that come downstream from the really important stuff all along. But you actually have to start with a vision. And then you have to show how your life story fits into that vision. And then you have to show how all of the other evidence you marshal, all of the stories you tell, all of the arguments you make, also sell people on that vision. So how do you set out that vision? And why is it that some politicians can come to own it and others don't? I mean, I always think about that in the context of Bernie Sanders. We talk about Bernie Sanders as a charismatic politician. I can see he has a certain kind of charisma, but, you know, he's like an old dude with a strong Brooklyn accent who kind of goes on about the same things over and over again. It's like Jewish grandpa charisma. Yeah, like, look, I love my Jewish grandpa, but I think he has charisma because he has that very clear vision and that very clear message, and people buy that he's passionate about it because he's talked about it for 40 years. And so that gives him that kind of charisma. It's not that you put him up against any number of other politicians and have him read from some random script, Sanders is not going to come across as having great charisma, but it's his script, it's his vision, and that's what lends him the charisma, actually. Absolutely, yeah. You can't work back a narrative from a bunch of on-the-ground stories. You have to be able to tell something that resonates with what you've been working on your whole life. Beto O'Rourke did a great job in his Senate campaign when he would talk about El Paso and how it was a community where there were more undocumented immigrants than almost anywhere else in Texas. And he saw firsthand what that did to his community, how it brought people together, how it lowered crime and what that could mean for the rest of Texas and what it could mean for the rest of the country. And so that was grounded in his personal experience was part of his broader vision, which was of a more inclusive Texas, of a Texas where everybody votes. And so they vote for candidates who better represent them than the candidates who have been there before. And then every individual story he told worked backwards to support that vision and narrative, but it didn't go the opposite way. And when it comes to Bernie Sanders, you know, this was someone who was able to say that his whole life he was fighting for these issues. When he was mayor, when he was marching in the civil rights protests, he's walked the walk. He would filibuster for hours and hours and hours in the Senate because they weren't following through on what he believed in. And it helped his supporters that he wasn't a member of any political party. That was, you know, largely symbolic. Obviously, he ran in the Democratic primary and shares the viewpoints of many of the rest of the people who will be running in 2020. But what distinguished him was throughout his life, he refused to follow those labels. And then when he would tell individual stories or when he would get on the campaign trail, people believed him because he's lived it. 
you've started to talk about Bada O'Rourke, another person who seems to have a charisma that draws people to talking about her a ton at the moment is Alexandria Octavio Cortez. In many ways, they're quite different characters. They come from different parts of a country. They come from different demographics. They have different levels of aspiration at the moment and different levels of experience in office. But they seem to share this ability to capture a mood. What is it that they shared from the point of view of a communicator, of a speechwriter? Do you see something that they have in common that everybody else who's not getting the same amount of hype at the moment does not? Yeah, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a brilliant politician, and that was clear from the first video that many of us saw her in, where she was basically making the argument that for too long, her district was being represented by people who didn't live there, by people who didn't represent the values of the people who she grew up around her whole life. And because of that, people saw in her one of them, and that made them feel like a part of a movement and like they were upsetting some norm, like they were underdogs. And people love rooting for underdogs. There's a famous sports theory from Bill Simmons, the nobody believes in us theory, which is the idea that when teams feel like other people don't expect them to win, they all perform better. And that's what mm. upsets happen. And they were both in different ways able to make an argument that the system was rigged against them. AOC was in a district with one of the most powerful representatives in the entire country. And she had no big funding. She was just an ordinary person. So everyone who was knocking on doors for her campaign was doing so with more energy than they'd ever done before because there was no way they were going to win. So they had to keep pushing until they got there. And Beto was trying to become one of the first Democrats to win statewide in decades. And he kept saying that they could win. So it's basically about being an underdog, framing your candidacy as something that the powerful don't want to succeed, but that, in fact, if the real people vote, you know, it's similar to what the populists do on the other side, but if the real people vote, if everyone who lived in Texas voted, Beto would have won. If everyone who lived in Ocasio-Cortez's district voted, she would have won. And in both cases, they overperformed because everyone felt nobody believes in us, but everyone thought if we all show up, if we all do what we can, we'll win this thing. When you look at the main candidates that you see emerging on the Democratic side right now, sort of in the aggregate, what are we doing wrong? I mean, what is the thing where you sort of sit at home and watching the TV, see them deliver some kind of speech saying, what are you guys doing? Why are you saying this? Why aren't you saying more of that? Is there a sort of a collective wisdom that you would want to impart? You know, it's not that there's so many things that they're all doing wrong in common. And in fact, I actually have been quite impressed that they've kept their heads down that they've kept fighting and proposing policies that would make a difference in people's lives. But I don't think that they've done nearly a good enough job singling out the victims of the Trump presidency. This ties into what I was discussing earlier. But when they focus on what a disgrace it is that the government's been shut down, they talk in the macro about 800,000 workers who won't be paid. They have not done a good enough job highlighting individual workers whose lives have been torn apart, who aren't going to be able to get Christmas gifts for their families. Even the people who are in the, you know, working for the TSA in airports during the most busy time of the year who are working for free. Those individuals should be highlighted. And you betcha the Tea Party would have them at rallies going around the country talking about all the damage that President Trump has done. And we need to do a better job elevating those voices and not just focusing on the Democratic politicians who are trying to win in 2020, but on the people that they represent and that they're going to represent and that they believe are being counted out and hurt by this administration. Because those are the people who will motivate everyone else to knock on that extra door, to make that extra phone call, to show up to the polls, not alone, but with, you know, 5, 10, 20 friends. I think we've learned a lot from what you've been saying. I also have a slight fear that you've talked yourself out of a job. <laughs> because if I'm listening to you, 
you're saying that the main thing that makes for a compelling candidate is authenticity, that they just got to be themselves, that if they try too hard, that in itself is a problem. So what can a speechwriter like you actually do to help a politician reach an audience? I think that my colleagues and I at Fenway have always talked about how speechwriting is so much about the speech coaching that goes along with it. And it's about just making someone feel comfortable giving a speech. Fundamentally, what you're asking people to do when they deliver a speech is completely irrational and completely terrifying. You're asking them to convince an audience of potentially thousands of people that they should stop what they're doing. They should put their phones away. The most exciting device ever invented. They should put it away. They should listen to a boring politician give a speech they might have given a thousand other times. How do you make that work? And the key to that is convincing those people the politicians, and making them really believe that what they're saying is important and has the power to motivate the audience and the power to make a difference in people's lives ultimately. And so the job of the speechwriter is to provide them with something that they're comfortable reading, that they're excited to read, and to help them get in the right headspace that they believe that if they read the speech, if they deliver the speech that's written for them, they'll motivate people and it really might make a difference at the polls and then in communities across America. Right at the outset of the conversation, you used a term that's been discussed a lot in the last week or so. You said that candidates need to be likable. Now, there was a piece in Politico, I believe, that said Elizabeth Warren just isn't likable and this is going to harm her. And it got a lot of blowback. Is likability a metric that we should be thinking about at all? Obviously, there's a real risk that likability will simply be a way either for people to brush off candidates they don't like for ideological reasons or for them to just so happen to find any woman who runs to be unlikable. No reason there. But is there something about likability? Is there something about John Kerry somehow being less likable than George W. Bush that cost Democrats the 2004 election? Is this a category we should even be thinking about? Well, I think that the media certainly shouldn't try to guess who's likable. The media hasn't proven to be very good at picking out the most likable candidate and ultimately it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If the media tells you every day that Hillary Clinton isn't likable, well, they know her better than you do, is the assumption, and maybe they're right. So that's definitely not fair, and it's definitely ended up harming women candidates in a way that is completely unacceptable and in a way that the media needs to do a lot of thinking about. Now, do voters think about likability? Absolutely. I mean, they're not sitting at home using some nebulous term like that, But going back to Dwight Eisenhower, candidates have tried to present themselves as likable. Everyone knows his famous pins and bumper stickers saying, I like Ike. People want to support a candidate, not just who they want to get a beer with, which is the cliche, but who they think is a decent person. And in life, you're making judgments about likability all the time, about whether someone's someone you trust, if you trust your kid's teacher, if you believe they'll do a good job in school, if you trust your neighbor, if you like them, if you want to hang out with them. So of course, that's not necessarily the best metric for people to be voting on, but it's not like everybody has time to read through all of the policies. And ultimately, likability is as much a part of political campaigns as anything else. That's a perfect cue for something that I've been stewing over here listening to you we haven't talked about policy at all when you go on twitter and all of the blue check marks are duking out who we should be supporting and who should be the standard bearer of the democratic party in 2020 it's all about policy it's so and so voted for this thing so and so didn't vote for this thing so and so has embraced medicare for all so and so has not embraced medicare for all you don't seem to think that matters so much Well, if you shouldn't trust the media to determine likability, you certainly shouldn't trust the blue check marks on Twitter to determine who's going to win an election. Ouch. Uh, that, is not, that is not a fair representation 
of who American voters are. They're right that policy is of crucial importance. It's what makes a difference in people's lives. It's why I care about politics and why I'm in it, because I believe that politicians can not only inspire, but make a real difference. That said, the policies of the Democratic candidates, thankfully, actually, are all pretty in line. They tend to believe in giving everyone a fairer shot in increasing wages and presenting better job opportunities and doing that particularly in green energy and in investing in combating climate change while growing our economy. They believe in providing more people with health care and better health care and more affordable health care. And they believe in building a society that's welcoming of people from all backgrounds, all sexual orientations, all genders. And that's shared between the Democratic candidates, thankfully. And that's the result of hard-won activism of people who have fought to make it so, including, of course, I joke, but many of the blue check marks on Twitter who have been marching the past couple years and have been organizing for the past couple decades. And they've all worked really hard to get us to this place. Thankfully, because of all of their work, we're in a place where we can vote for politicians who we believe can beat Donald Trump. And that is a national emergency. Um, The Trump presidency is a national emergency and beating him should be something that we're all as excited about as going to the moon. It should be something that we view (laughs) the future of our nation as depending on. And if that means voting for a candidate with slightly marginal policy differences from another or someone who you don't agree with all the time, but someone who you're confident has the best vision for the country, someone who you like, someone who you believe can make a difference, then you should by all means vote for that person. And voters in poll after poll after poll have shown that the most important thing to them is nominating someone who can beat Donald Trump. And you won't beat Donald Trump if you're not incredible at campaigning, if you don't tell a fantastic story, not only of your own life and why you care about the country, but of the people in America, if you don't elevate their stories. And then if you don't combine all of that into a transformative vision for this country that proves that we are marching slowly, zigzagging towards becoming a little bit more perfect. I absolutely buy that. And I think it's right that most primary voters are not going to be looking at the details of the policy proposals. I do think that there's one divide that will communicate to them, and it's more of a stylistic divide. And as my last question, I'd love to hear your take on it. I think there's a set of candidates that want to prove that they are the most angry about Trump that they hate him the most, that they're going to be a fighter and go up against him the most. And then there's another set of candidates that are just as aghast by Trump, that are just as adamant that he doesn't represent America, but who want to say that the answer is transcending the ugliness of this moment and coming together as Americans. It's a very different mode. And I think that does communicate to voters. Do you have a strong view on which of those two modes is more likely to appeal either in the primary election or in the general? I think that hopelessness has never driven out voters. The act of voting is inherently a hopeful one. The belief that you can make a difference, that the situation is not ruined, that America still can become a better country. And so you need to present people with an inspiring message that if they vote, the country can become better. Trump didn't ruin everything. They're not only voting out of hatred of Trump, but love of a better vision for the country. And Cory Booker communicates that really well when he talks about America and his life being a conspiracy of love politicians for a really long time have injected love into their messages. And I think particularly at a moment when everything feels hopeless, when people aren't sure whether the Trump presidency will ever end, at a moment when people have given up on the political system, you need to show them that there's a reason to show up to the polls to make a difference. And candidates did that really well in 2018. I think the Democratic Party made a compelling case that we can become a check on Trump. And that was a hopeful case. It was an angry case, and everyone should be angry about President Trump. But it was accompanied by a hopeful case, a case of love that we can take back the House and then take back our country. 
And that's going to be the same message that wins in 2020, one that addresses the fact that Trump has committed atrocities not only to the Constitution, not only to rule of law, but to individual people across the country. Their lives are worse because of his presidency. But we can do better and America can become better. And if you believe in our country, if you have hope, if you love it, we will overcome this moment just as we've overcome so many trials and difficulties in the past. Sam, we talk about this stuff offline over time. It's been so fun to do it on the air and go do whatever marginal, small difference speech writers make, according to you, over the next two years. We need it. <laughs> Thanks, Yash. This is fun. That's our show for today. Say hello to us on Twitter and let us know what you think. I'm at Yasha Monk. That's Y-A-S-C-H-A underscore M-O-U-N-K. And you can find the show at Real Trumpcast. Before you go, I have one more request. Sign up for Slate Plus. It's only $35 for the first year and it gets you the full roster of Slate podcasts, including my own show, The Good Fight. Go to slate.com slash trumpcast. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan. I'm Yasha Munk. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast. For those of you who don't know, I am going to educate you because I'm the CEO of my company. I'm very successful. When somebody is running a business and they're doing great, you don't fire them. So as president, you don't impeach me because you think it's not going great. It's going great. It's going fantastic. It's tremendous. The economy is through the roof. All the numbers, unemployment, lowest ever. Everything, all the indicators, it's great. So you can't impeach me. You don't impeach people who's doing a great job. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand? Do you get that? It's so simple. Stop saying impeachment. Do you know how much an impeachment costs? Believe me, it's very expensive. Very expensive. Let's save some money. And we'll forgo the impeachment and I'll just be the president for the next two years. You'll be happy. I'll be happy. The American people will be very, very happy. Stop wasting time and money on impeachment. I didn't do anything wrong.